Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Well, folks, here we are at the 109th film score written by John Williams. But most important, it was released in 2019, 60 years after his first film score made its debut. And we've heard a lot of different music from John Williams through this podcast, and it's been a delightful journey all the way to this point. Making The Rise of Skywalker the final film score in this series is nice because it completes the Star Wars saga, the series that launched the maestro into superstardom. But it's also not so nice because the score doesn't really feel like it closes out the nine film series with a bang, but with a whimper. And joining me to discuss the score for The Rise of Skywalker is Paulius Aedicus, who I am sure is going to disagree with me on almost every issue regarding this score. It is good to have you back for this one, Paulius. Hello, Jeff. I'm glad to be back on the podcast for the last John Williams score. I've been really enjoying our discussions on the Star Wars sequel trilogy so far, and I'm looking forward to any agreements or disagreements regarding the rise of Skywalker. So, like pretty much everyone on the planet, I was anxious to watch The Rise of Skywalker so that we could wrap up this saga with hopefully more answers than questions and hear more exciting music from John Williams to lift the sequel trilogy music to grander heights. And once I saw that the Palpatine clone was in the movie, I knew J.J. Abrams and everyone else involved had almost zero fresh ideas to give us. Like Abrams did in The Force Awakens, Many scenes harken back to the original trilogy, from a trip to a desert planet to a fight on a watery wreckage of the second Death Star. In retrospect, I think that Ryan Johnson, who wrote and directed The Last Jedi, would have been the better pick to direct this film. I prefer his creativity and vision to Abrams's, which, in my opinion, would have elevated the culmination of the saga much further. And I also think that Ryan Johnson treats John Williams's score with much more respect than J.J. Abrams. I had a lot of issues with how the score was overwhelmed by the sounds in The Force Awakens, and those issues only get more serious in The Rise of Skywalker. Not only does the music in the film have little breathing space due to the sound effects, but you can also hear that entire sections of cues sometimes get inexplicably removed or edited in a confusing manner. It seems that John Williams wrote the music for an entirely different film than what G.J. Abrams and his editing team have given us in the end. Another reason why I didn't really like the film is that J.J. Abrams, rather than building upon Ryan Johnson's treatment of the story in The Last Jedi, decides to completely change direction. Previously introduced characters such as Rose, rather than being developed further, are relegated to minor background roles, while many new ones are introduced, such as the spice runner Zori or Emperor Palpatine. It doesn't really feel right to make these kinds of radical changes to the characters this late in the trilogy, because one film can only cover so much and we inevitably run into the issue of underdeveloped characters. Due to this repeated infighting between Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams, the whole trilogy seems to be quite a letdown for me, compared to the other two trilogies, which had a more unified direction and continuous development of characters throughout all the films. In the sequel trilogy, the only story arc that gets a good and exciting treatment, as well as a proper resolution, is the arc of Rey and Kylo Ren. And just as a quick setup, here's a rundown of the plot, with some plot spoilers coming, naturally. 
The entire film throws away just about everything that happened in The Last Jedi for a plot involving the return of Emperor Palpatine, who, as you remember, was thrown into a shaft by Darth Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi. It seems like someone managed to harness Palpatine's DNA and create a clone. And that clone spent the past, I don't know, 20 years creating a new and stronger fleet of Star Destroyers that would wipe out any rebellion. Oh yes, Palpatine is Rey's grandfather. And the thought of Palpatine creating a child, whether through artificial insemination or the natural way, you have to agree, it's just icky to think about. And if you think about the timeline, Palpatine's son had to be born before the events of Return of the Jedi in order to be of age to be Rey's father. Sound confusing? Well, yep, it is, which is why screenwriters J.J. Abrams and Oscar winner Chris Terrio never try to flesh it out. They just assume we'll go with it. So the Palpatine clone wants Rey to succeed him as the leader of the Final Order, and while she resists him, the Resistance tries to shoot down the massive fleet of Star Destroyers. Oh yeah, Kylo Ren also turns from the dark side with help from Leia, who reaches out to him in her final breath. And Luke comes back as a Force ghost. We have Lando Calrissian back, and we almost lose Chewbacca. I saw a review of The Rise of Skywalker on YouTube, and I agree with the reviewer that most of the actions in The Rise of Skywalker are propelled by characters from the original trilogy. So Luke convinces Rey to confront Palpatine. Leia and Han are the ones who turn Ben away from the dark side, and Lando saves the day when all looks lost. Just another way J.J. Abrams and crew wanted to pay their due respect to the original trilogy while also diminishing the effectiveness of the new characters. So, Polly's, so you mentioned that you traveled from Norway to England to watch The Last Jedi. I hope you really did feel the need to do that for The Rise of Skywalker. No, Jeff, I didn't. I watched The Rise of Skywalker in Norway. I didn't feel the need to travel this time because, unlike with The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi, none of the scenes in The Rise of Skywalker were shot with IMAX camera lenses. Nor were there any analog film prints released, so the only available screenings were digital ones and I didn't have much to lose by watching the film at my usual movie theater. This is another issue that I have with the film. As a proponent of analog film, I felt that some of the more spectacular scenes could have benefited from a higher resolution than digital screenings allow, as well as an IMAX aspect ratio to really give that visual immersion for the audience. And speaking of the music, as you mentioned a little earlier, there's not much breathing space for the score. It seems like it's pretty much wall-to-wall, with very few spots that give the movie a chance to exist without music. Yes, there's a lot of music in this movie. More music was recorded for The Rise of Skywalker than for any other Star Wars film. There's a total of 3 hours and 46 minutes of music, which was recorded during 28 recording sessions spread across 14 days. About 2 hours of that recorded music ended up in the final cut of the film. There are many great new and original themes, as well as inclusion and development of themes from earlier films, and some track cues too. It felt like John Williams thought about everything that he had ever composed for the Star Wars franchise, and brought all that music together in a way that not only highlighted the end of the sequel trilogy, but also the end of his work on Star Wars in general. That resulted in some spectacular musical moments, as well as a great deal of nostalgia, and we'll try to cover that as much as we can. 
it's important to mention that very little of the score has been released, and as of today, we still don't have an isolated score which we could listen to, as journalists would say, without the distraction of the film. So, don't be surprised if you hear some sound effects here and there, and if the mixing feels weird. It's the best that we have currently. Yeah. So before John Williams set out to write the score for The Rise of Skywalker, he had another responsibility to the film. So if you've seen the film, at the 48 minute and 30 second mark of the movie, the maestro himself makes a cameo as a street vendor on the planet of Kijimi. Now it lasts barely three seconds. Uh, I noticed it the first time I saw it, and I think a few other people in the theater with me noticed too, because I heard them gasping in surprise at the same time I did. And his character's name is Oma Trace, an anagram of the word maestro. Now, John Williams has no lines, but he shakes his head in annoyance as our resistance heroes run past his shop. Now, even though this cameo is so brief, J.J. Abrams put in some callbacks to John Williams' history. All the trinkets that surround Williams reference one of his 51 Oscar nominations. And because it's only three seconds, we don't need to spend much time on it, but it was just a nice little moment. I must shamefully admit that I didn't notice the cameo at first. I was so surprised when I saw John Williams being credited among the cast, and I couldn't even focus properly on the end credits music because I was trying to figure out which scene I had missed. I did watch the film two more times though, trying to pay more attention, so I did figure it out eventually. I really liked those trinkets around him, it was a nice gesture by J.J. Abrams. And even before his Rise of Skywalker cameo, John Williams had another short trip to that galaxy far, far away when he was asked to work on the score to the second standalone Star Wars film about the anti-hero Han Solo in his earlier years. Media reports indicate that John Williams was never considered as the composer for this film, but was asked to contribute a little theme for Han that he never got to compose for the older character as played by Harrison Ford. John Powell was hired as the composer in summer 2017, with Williams ready to tackle his work when he was done conducting the score to the post. It's not much music from Williams, really only about three minutes of material that Powell could weave in and out of his score. And here's what John Powell had to say about the conversations he had with Williams. I was in touch with him all along, and one of the interesting things that he did as well was was basically tell me to stop being too sort of reverent hmm. of things uh, because I, I was I was trying to I, in the score I really am trying to sort of pick up the the lineage pick up the the arc of the piece you know of the canon and and um, and it became it became inhibiting perhaps uh, and eventually John himself said to me he said uh, you know you you do a different thing don't worry you know, it's so going to be different. You know, so. And very uh, freeing, hopefully. It is. I mean, the thing to remember, though, is, of course, is I'm, I was hugely influenced by him. So it's there in the, in the DNA of what I do anyway. I mean, sometimes more obviously than others, perhaps. And in this case, obviously, I was using themes that were old themes as well. So we used some of the old themes. And we used these new themes of John's and themes that I wrote. And it's all mixed together, as <laughs> And here's a taste of what John Williams wrote for Solo, A Star Wars Story. It comes from the concert suite called The Adventures of Han.
You'll hear this a lot in the moments when Han does something heroic in the film. Paulius, what do you think of this theme for Han Solo? I like it. It has got two contrasting sections, which are just asking to be developed, and which keep the concert arrangement interesting. So, first there is this heroic one, where we can hear a lot of wide jumps up and down, based on perfect fifths and perfect fourths. It reminds me of Poe's theme, and especially in this part. You can see how easily they could be merged together. And then there is the second minor motif. In the middle of it, you can hear a harmonic change. It goes from B minor to G minor. This is, of course, uh, the progression that's central to Darth Vader's theme. So, there are a lot of things going on in the harmony of Han Solo's theme, and it has a colorful emotional palette. I think that the intention was for Judd Wilms to give John Powell a selection of building blocks to base the new score on, and I think that he couldn't have asked for more with this piece. It's a great theme. Yeah, but I find John Powell's work on Solo to be just okay. I mean, it fits well into the feel of a Star Wars movie, and you don't feel like it's a different composer other than John Williams writing the score. But as a whole, it's it's uh, a little bit more satisfying than what I hear in The Rise of Skywalker. And that's because I don't think there is one musical cue in The Rise of Skywalker that doesn't rely on music from the prequel trilogy, the original trilogy, or the first two films of the sequel trilogy. Now, I thought of taking count of how many minutes of music was completely new and how much of it was just rearranged performances of old music. It got a little too exhaustive around the halfway point and I was getting a little aggravated that very few scenes up to that point had music completely original to the film. I'm not entirely happy about this choice made between J.J. Abrams and John Williams, but there are some great throwback moments. The performance of Leia's theme as she is eulogized was perfectly delicate and still noble. The use of the binary sunset music at the end might have annoyed you, Polyus, but it was fitting. And the Star Wars theme coming in as Lando saves the day made me smile. However, using the music for Darth Vader's death in the scene when Rey is inside the second Death Star was very odd. I mean, why not use the Emperor's theme since she was standing in his former throne room? 
Now, I couldn't detect a lot of new thematic material in the film, and after I watched the movie to prepare for this episode, I went to a tried-and-true source to help me find any new thematic material on The Rise of Skywalker. So thanks to Frank Lehman's comprehensive breakdown of all the musical motifs on his website, franklehman.com, I learned there are four or five new themes written for The Rise of Skywalker. And what is very different about this music compared to the music for previous Star Wars films is that none of his themes connect to any one person in particular. They're attached to a group of people, or really more accurately, to the mood of the moment. And if we're talking about the best new theme of the film, for me, that's the music for the Knights of Ren. It really stands out for me. It also sounds almost like nothing we've heard before in a Star Wars movie, but still does feel a bit familiar. To me, the motif sounds like an emboldened version of Peter Pettigrew's motif from Prisoner of Azkaban, made stronger by the fact that it's performed by the brass section and accompanied by loud, primal-sounding percussion. Here is a snippet of Peter Pettigrew's theme. And this is what the music for The Knights of Ren sounds like. That's the strongest performance of the theme in the film, which takes place as knights are seen standing on top of a cliff. Yeah, it's a great shot and a great musical moment. You know, the Knights of Ren theme has that driving repetitive note I like that really reinforces their power. I just want to talk real quick about the scene that immediately follows that. Rey faces Kylo, who is quickly approaching her on the ground in his TIE fighter. The Jedi jumps into the air, and, while doing a backflip in slow motion, cuts off one of the TIE fighter's wings with her lightsaber, causing Kylo Ren to crash. The scene is presented in the film without music, and the only thing that we hear are the loud sound effects of Kylo Ren's ship and Rey's lightsaber. But we now know that John Williams did write music for that spectacular scene, and it was later removed by the sound department in order to make the sound effects of the scene stand out. When I learned about it, I got angry. Removing what is likely a musical set piece just feels like a crime to me. Yeah, one day I hope we get to hear that music. So Frank Lehman mentions another theme for the villains of the film, which is called the Anthem of Evil. After reading the music notes as he has them on his website and thinking about it a little more, it seemed to have some connection to the Imperial March without being too obvious. But among all the villains themes for the Star Wars series, this one just didn't carry quite the punch throughout the film. I remember it quite vividly playing at the beginning of the film when Kylo Ren arrives at the Exegol planet where the Palpatine clone has been hiding. But what I thought was the actual theme playing in the strings was actually just the rhythm providing the energy of the theme, which is in the brass. Here's a more straightforward performance of it. 
At first, I thought it was a permutation of Kylo Ren's theme, which is why I didn't feel like it was an entirely new theme. It made sense to me that it would be a variation on Kylo's theme because he is the one we see approaching the planet. But this music plays again when we see Rey arriving at Exegol in her ship, so I wasn't sure what to think about it. In a way, the Anthem of Evil has a connection to Kylo Ren's theme and other John Williams' themes that are associated with evil. The rhythmic pattern appears to mirror that of Darth Vader's theme, while in the melody we have references to Emperor's theme and Kylo Ren's theme. All of these themes are unified by a specific choice of harmony that John Williams likes to use to represent evil, namely the Hungarian minor scale, which sounds like this. It is important to Carnatic music, the music of South India, and it's also heard in a lot of Eastern European music, particularly the music of the Romani people and Hungary, from where it got its name. Kylo Ren's motif comes right out of the first five notes of the scale. And so does the Anthem of Evil. One of my favorite statements of the Atom of Evil comes when Kylo Ren reveals to Rey that Palpatine is her grandfather. First we hear menacing funeral march chords, and then the Atom of Evil plays, before Rey is saved by the Millennium Falcon. So I'm going to put blame on J.J. Abrams for this, but the reason why I never identified this theme during any of my viewings is because the theme is mixed so very low in the sound. But perhaps Williams could have provided better orchestration to make sure it's heard better. I think a good choice in the scene when Ray learns that she's the granddaughter of Palpatine would be to use a male chorus to vocalize the theme. Using a chorus always comes with the danger that it might interfere with the dialogue of the characters. So... In a dialogue-heavy scene like that, I prefer Williams' choice to use instruments only. Yes, you make a good point. The strings do create a tense atmosphere there, and we also get a really clear statement of the theme in the horns, as the camera centers on Rey, just before she escapes with the Millennium Falcon. So, I don't have any issues with the presentation of the music there, at least not until the Falcon appears and the shootout begins, drowning the music out. Two new themes in the film that go well together are the friendship theme and the victory theme. They are so thematically compatible that 
John Wilmes merged them for a concert arrangement of The Rise of Skywalker. Let's work through the friendship theme first. In the previous episode discussing The Last Jedi, I talked about how John Wilmes uses the leading mode to infuse his themes with signature brightness and happiness. And he uses that same leading mode in The Rise of Skywalker for the friendship theme. What we get is a Cantalina-like piece, which is first heard when Rey decides to go on a mission alone, but her friends, Poe, Finn, Chewie, and the two droids, don't let her go alone and convince Rey to let them all join her. A really cool moment occurs when the heroes take off in the Millennium Falcon. The Force team leads into the friendship team, which gets some early melodic development. But the really great moment comes at the end of the film, when Ray, Finn and Poe gather together for a group hug. There is a really emotional statement by the strings, and it's difficult to not tear up in moments like this. Oh boy, I was close to tears at that moment too. So in the previous episode of this podcast discussing The Post uh, when, with Paul Wright and myself, Paul talked about the role of music in a movie to create emotion. And I think the music in this scene when they were having that group hug really helped to create that visceral emotion we had to the three of them hugging. It was tear-jerking visually, but really takes it further with that great string performance. 
So you said that the victory theme and the friendship theme are kind of connected. How do they relate to each other? They are quite related in my opinion. But let's hear the victory theme itself. It first appears as the Resistance discusses their tactics for the coming battle with the Final Order. I think that what both themes have in common is that they end each motif on a downward interval. It's really emphasizing their melodic structure and makes the theme sound as if they are reaching for something higher and higher. So, for example, the friendship theme begins with these notes. And then goes down by a perfect fifth. In the next bar, it climbs up. before, again, descending down, this time by a perfect fourth. In the third statement, once again, it tries to ascend even higher, before coming down in a minor third. What the victory theme does is similar in this regard. So, it starts off with this dreamy motif. And when the motif ends, the music descends by a minor 7th. It then continues on, reaching a bit higher. Before descending again by a minor 7th. For the third time, it goes higher again. And descends by a minor 3rd. And the theme goes on and on like this. In the concert arrangement, Willem Simon switches up the harmony a bit to make the transition between the themes even smoother. There is more to say about the melodic structure of the victory theme. Mark Richards, a great music theorist, has noticed that the victory theme hints at Ray's chime motif. Let's listen to both of these one after the other. Here's Ray's motif. 
And now, here's the victory motif. The victory theme played here is an equally long quarter note. But later on, it gets the same rhythmic structure as raised chime motif. Very cool. That's a great observation by Mark. Again, this theme isn't allowed to be noticed very much in the film, only at the end when the final order is defeated. And at that point, I only thought it to be a one-off melody composed instead of rehashing the resistance theme, which I thought would have worked as well here too. So I'd like to talk about some of the great moments in the score that reference previous themes. One of them got circled in my notes, and it's the moment Ray is running through the training course at the beginning of the film. And with the exception of the introduction of her theme in The Force Awakens, this is the best rendition of Ray's theme in the entire series. It retains that touch of femininity while giving her the strength she has attained throughout the series. Of course, this is the one theme that deserved a hero's development. Unlike Luke's theme, which is also the main theme for the entire saga, this theme was able to develop slowly but surely through three films. I think John Williams was pleased with the way he was able to use his unmatched compositional skills to give Rey the musical journey that matched her on-screen journey. In some ways, Luke Skywalker's journey was set from the second he swung across the chasm with Leia in Star Wars. And it might have been tough for John Williams to shape the theme in different ways after that, but he did. Speaking of Ray's theme, I really like how it has matured throughout the trilogy together with the character. In The Force Awakens, the introduced motifs were still very fragile and innocent. In The Last Jedi, her theme becomes fragmented and conflicted. And now, in The Rise of Skywalker, we finally hear some great moments of resolution. At the very end of the film, there's both a visual and a musical callback to the childlike past of The Force Awakens, which now seems so distant, as Rey slides down a sand hill in Tatooine, and as the chime motif plays over the last cue of the film. Kylo Ren also gets some great developments of his theme, especially as he begins to turn to the light side. We hear his theme rendered in a more heroic mode rather than the menacing Hungarian minor scale, as he arrives on Exegol to help Rey.
This new Ben's theme gets even more development after Palpatine is destroyed and bent crawls towards the dead body of Rey. John Williams talked about developing this theme in an interview with American music critic James Schweda. Let's hear an excerpt of that. You said something very interesting about the Wren theme, this theme associated with yes. the new Darth Vader. Yes, the Wren's theme, which is the manifestation of complete evil that we've had in the last three films for Wren. And in this one, of course, he's been transformed back into Ben, a benign son and now hero. And it was actually J.G.'s idea that any way to transform his evil melody into something that's recognizable as, as Ren's theme that would be positive and present him as a hero. And it really worked very well, Jim. I changed the melody very little, some harmonic and a little modality shift probably people will not notice it's the same tune treated very differently when he becomes a benign figure. And that's something I've never done in my life in a film. And I enjoyed the fact that it worked so well that the melody, I didn't have to be turned upside down, just had to be altered very slightly, mostly harmonically and modally, to make him a hero. That was, I must say, a lot of fun, and it felt like it worked so well, and probably something that people don't notice in the theater. We don't expect them to, and it's fine if they don't. But if they feel the change emotionally and in their uh, reaction to You know, the you'd be surprised. People you'd be surprised. Re- would I? Oh, oh yeah, because, you know, even kids, and it's something our mutual friend uh, Randy Newman likes to say. He says, you know, well, America, we may be 25th in... Uh, mathematics around the world. Yeah. We're not 25th in terms of movie comprehension. I see. And <laughs> the way you feel things yes. in a yeah. score, yes. that yes. you might not be physically aware of it and say, oh, yeah, there. But yeah. you know something's happening. Yes. And it happens to even very young viewers. Yes. It's, it's amazing. Well, that's nice. That makes me very happy. But I enjoyed that shift a great deal. And I'm grateful to JJ. I probably would have written a new theme a new positive heroic theme for him. He said, no, 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 if you just have you know, have him transformed into, into something positive and benign, it would be good and fun. John Williams doesn't really plan the development of his themes in advance. In the context of a whole trilogy like composers such as Howard Shore would do, rather, John Williams scores each film one by one as they come. But still, he manages to create a sort of musical finality to a character arc. I find that fascinating. It just shows how versatile John Williams' themes are and how they are always open for more development. Oh, yes, exactly. I mean, take Vader's theme, for instance. I mean, are there any other composers out there who could reverse engineer a theme to make it sound innocent and childlike for the younger version of him? Not many, I bet. So we can't forget about the Emperor's theme, which is played quite often in The Rise of Skywalker, much more than I remembered the first time. Not only does it play in the beginning of the film as Palpatine coerces Kylo to kill Rey for some reason, 
but it also plays when the resistance talks about Palpatine's return. What stands out about all the performances of the Emperor's theme is that there is no male choir this time vocalizing it. All of the performances feature low woodwinds that keep the sinister tone, but no vocals. Now I have a theory about that. John Williams felt that since this Palpatine was essentially a copy of the original, some of his original theme would get lost in the process of that copying, like you would when you make a copy of the original. Yes, the Palpatine clone was powerful, but he still wasn't the original. And I was glad that Mark Hamill got to come back to Rise of Skywalker to give Rey the boost she needed to defeat the Emperor, but I was a little bit annoyed by the use of the music from The Empire Strikes Back when Yoda lifts the X-Wing from the swamp. It happens when Luke lifts the X-Wing from the waters of Octo so Rey can travel to Exegol. John Williams did not intend for this music to be in the film. He had different music composed for this moment, but very late in the recording process, J.J. Abrams decided that this music was much better and asked Williams to come up with a new arrangement instead of just replaying the old cue. Unlike you, Jeff, I like that moment in the film. The X-Wing cue from Yoda Swamp is one of my favorite cues of all time, and when I heard it in The Rise of Skywalker, it sent a chill up my spine. Maybe it was a bit cheesy and obvious, and I'd certainly like to hear John Williams' original intention for that scene, but that cue was unexpected, and I found it as thrilling as I did in the original trilogy. Yeah, I know it's supposed to take us full circle back to the moment when Luke couldn't lift his X-Wing back in The Empire Strikes Back, and I did appreciate that, but it was too obvious, especially visually. I mean, you could almost see Mark Hamill winking to the audience as the X-Wing comes into frame. Speaking of another instance of an old team coming back, I'd want to mention the moment when the massive Lando's fleet arrives in a Deus Ex Machina moment to save the resistance of Exegol. It's scored by the familiar quick and repetitive four-note motif. The musical term for this is the tetrachord. And yes, we've heard it in the end credits after the end of every Star Wars film, but it hasn't appeared in the actual film score since the original trilogy. So, again, this was a great nostalgic shivers-down-your-spine cue, it hasn't been released, unfortunately, so we can only hear it in the film with the sound effects.
Oh yes, that was a great moment with that tetrachord and the entire Star Wars theme playing, which hasn't been performed in full in the film since we saw Luke and Leia swing across the Death Star chasm in Star Wars. So that definitely was, it was, you say shivers up your spine, I call it a goosebumps moment because I, I really did kind of feel that. I was like, wow, this is Star Wars. So many of the techniques that John Williams used to make old themes sound fresh and revitalized in The Rise of Skywalker was likely one reason why the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences gave him his 52nd nomination for the score. It was his 43rd in the original score category, and he had some tough competition that year. Not only were mainstays Alexandra Desplat, Thomas Newman, and Randy Newman in the mix, but an Icelandic composer named Hildur Gunnadóttir was celebrating her first nomination for her 10th feature film score. This was for the film Joker, and her win was the third time a female composer won for writing an original underscore, and the first time in the combined original score category. The win was not surprising, given that she had won some awards before the Oscar show, but it would have been nice for Thomas Newman to finally hold an Oscar after 15 nominations. It would have been really great to hear John Williams' name called as sort of a career win for achieving the seemingly impossible feat of writing more than 20 hours of music for a nine-film series over 42 years. So though John Williams didn't win an Oscar for The Rise of Skywalker on February 9th, 2020, he did pick up another piece of hardware two weeks earlier. Grammy win number 25 came for Best Instrumental Composition for Star Wars Galaxy Edge. This music was made for the new area at Disney World and made its debut at the Star Wars convention in 2019. Now imagine hearing this music as you walk into the Galaxy's Edge area of Disney World.
And it's great that after writing all of that music for the Star Wars movies that he could still dig deep and create new material that doesn't lean heavily on pre-existing melodies. So that same day, Williams had the chance to win another Grammy, but his arrangement of Hedwig's theme for violinist Anne Sophie Mutter lost out to Jacob Collier's arrangement of Moon River. And speaking of that Hedwig's theme arrangement, it's part of the very successful release of Across the Stars, the new compilation album featuring 12 tracks as performed by Mutter and the Recording Arts Orchestra of Los Angeles and conducted by John Williams. The CD came out just six months before the unforgettable concert in Vienna featuring John Williams conducting on the European mainland continent for the first time. A few of my co-hosts and a few listeners have shared their experiences of the two-day concert, and I have been unable to contain my extreme jealousy. Now, Paulius, you shared your experiences of the event during the Prisoner of Azkaban episode, but how did you find the new arrangements for Anne Sophie Mutter, which were a prominent part of that concert in Vienna? I thought that the new renditions of the themes were amazing, both on the album and in the concert with the Vienna Philharmonic. I've been listening to the old film themes for so long, so it's nice to have some new, refreshing takes. Anna Sophie is a world-renowned virtuoso, and her skill with the violin really elevates the music with new richness to the sound. Also, the instrument that she used to perform those arrangements was her Stradivarius from 1709. That's a 311-years-old violin. These kinds of violins are invaluable, and their timber is reserved for only the most revered music and concert halls. So I think that speaks volumes to the fact that John Williams is no longer any film composer. He has become THE film composer. He's an important part of modern Western classical music, and certainly a man whose work will be studied by the academia of the future. So, if you have an opportunity to see and hear John Williams perform live, go and use it. These are very much historic, one-of-a-kind events. And there's talk that John Williams wants to go to Berlin to conduct a concert there in 2021. I don't think I'll be able to make that happen, but I really hope that concert does take place. Well, that takes us to the end of this journey through John Williams' career. I can't believe it. This is the end. 60 years, 109 feature films, 5 Oscars, 52 Oscar nominations, millions of records sold, and a legendary status that has almost transformed him into a deity in his lifetime. It felt great being with you on this last episode of your amazing podcast, Jeff. The whole retrospective seems to have gone by so quickly. I can still clearly remember reading your announcement of the project on the JW fan website, and then immediately going to Podbean to listen to the prologue episode, as I sat on the train for my early commute to work. Already then I learned so many new things about John Williams' life, and my knowledge of him and his music only grew and grew, thanks to your meticulous research and dedication. Listening to your podcast had become a regular activity for me, and I couldn't have been more excited for another new episode every Wednesday morning, and another John Willem score to learn about. Well, thank you for your meticulous research and dedication. It's really helped these episodes that you've been a part of. Um, and just more importantly, you hold a place of honor as the final co-host of the podcast. So thank you very much for doing it. All right, so this may be the end of the film score journey, but there's one more episode of The Baton to go. And in that episode, I'm going to wrap up my thoughts about John Williams' career, and I will have a special guest on the finale as well. 
I'm going to lower your expectations right now. It is not John Williams. So don't plan for that. All right. So join me for one more episode of the show. Until then, the baton is down. <laughs>